Hey guys, welcome back to the pod. Uh, it is it's Thursday night, eight o'clock. It's, you know my normal time. I do my thing. So, got another episode for you guys. And this week, it's uh, something we talked a lot when I launched this project. When Sam and I launched this project, we want to as much as discuss ideas that we are already familiar with. <clears throat> it should always be, or it should be a a learning experience. Um, so, I mentioned it briefly. Uh, in the sit rep episode I did this weekend, I actually had the opportunity uh, to head up to Northern Michigan this past weekend with uh, both Jake and Ryan, uh, two two good friends that have both been uh, guests on the show, and I had them come on because while I have developed as a shooter, um, as uh, I guess as a person, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say, um, I've developed in the tactical shooting space. That's where my knowledge comes from. That's where my research has been. Everything I know is based around the the concept of self-defense shooting. Uh, and my my practice, my preparation has all been around that that ideology, right? Um, and, and they're two dudes who uh, it, it's kind of the other end of the spectrum, right? We brought them on to talk about hunting, fishing, uh, everything that has to do with the outdoors, things that I'm just honestly not that good at. Uh, I was just raised differently. Um, it, that, that's just it. You know, I mean, I, I didn't do it a lot as a kid. Therefore, uh, I was not predetermined to do it more as an adult. Uh, it's something I've had to obviously, you know, seek out uh, due to my own interests. Um, but anyways, went up north. Uh, for those of you in other states, I think it's it's similar. Um it's the beginning of October. So here in Michigan, it is the beginning of bow season for deer. It's huge here. Okay. It's huge in Michigan, which is strange because after doing some reading and talking to some people and stuff, we're really not like a, uh, like a hotbed of, of large bucks or large deer or anything, but it's just, it's popular here because we have a, a high volume deer population, I suppose. Um, so we went up and what we were doing while we were there was, uh, it was a really good learning opportunity for me because what, what Jake and Ryan were doing was uh, scouting uh, for where they want to put their tree stands or their blind, whatever you want to call it, for for hunting season. Um, and I kind of understood the concept, right? You want to be high up in a tree so that when the deer come wandering around, um, they A, don't see you right away, but B, you got a good angle. Um, you can see more. You can see further, you know, over the, you know, relatively low vegetation, whatever you're dealing with whether it's small trees or plants or brush or whatever. What I didn't really realize is that that's like probably it's on like the back half of the list, honestly, is like you look at the tree. Um, we went, uh, Ryan's family has a, has a cabin. Um, so we went up there, drove up. Um, and I'm just going to start from like the beginning cause this was a, a super cool trip. A lot of people might think it was kind of uneventful, but for me it was, it was great. Um, we left after work hours, you know, we're all working people. So we got up, uh, to, I believe it's Atlanta, Michigan or Mayo, Michigan is kind of around the area we were at. Um, and about 1130 ish, I want to say we went driving through this, uh, ranch property that is where we were staying, um, with a spotlight, essentially we're spotlighting, um, his, uh, Ryan's uncle had told him before he headed up, Hey, you know, we saw a bunch of, uh, a bunch of elk activity up here. So you might get a chance to see some depending on, you know, where you're at, when you go out and whatever. So we went out about 11 o'clock, 1130, like I said, and, uh, we had a spotlight with us and we just drive around to there's big old open fields, uh, a couple different ones that he knew of. And I actually, for the first, my, my first time seeing a, uh, an elk out in the wild, um, I was kind of expecting something, uh, kind of like a moose, I guess, or, or I don't know. For some reason I was just envisioning in my, you know, my mind's eye, I, it was me, like, it was, re- was me really hairy, um, and kind of like stocky, I guess. And obviously then have like antlers, right. Um, to say what I saw was not what I was, I was expecting is kind of, that's kind of it. Uh, they look like they're like really big deer is essentially the best way I could kind of describe it to the layperson. They do have more of like, uh, at least the, the bulls do. That was, that was another thing. Um, I was calling them bucks. Apparently, uh, that was incorrect, obviously. And, uh, 
So it's bulls and cows, not bucks and does. Um, again, I, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> so, you know, that was a good laugh for everybody to kind of just, hey, just so you know, not not the correct uh, vernacular. Um, but the uh, one of the first places we went and checked, uh, there was, it was either one or two bucks. And these, and they had to be at least eight feet tall, maybe probably taller, honestly. And they were uh, six by six. So six points on each uh, antler or... Uh, or I believe that's the correct term antler anyway. Um, and then they had the first one, I want to say had probably six or seven cows, uh, with them. And then the second, uh, grouping that we saw, I had, a uh, an, again, another, I believe it was a six by six, uh, bull with, uh, three or four cows. And it was just awesome because, uh, they're just, they're massive. Um, the second one we got almost, we turned the spotlight on along the road and there was some like tall brush grass, uh, along the roadside probably about 10 feet of it, maybe. Um, and then it, it just dropped down. It was like an open field, right? Um, and, uh, and the elk was about 50 feet away when we turned that spotlight on. So we got really close. Um, it was really just a really cool experience to see. Uh, and then, you know, just talking more, uh, I know I think we talked both with Ryan and Jake about uh, elk tags and how difficult it is to, to get one. You know, essentially you have to sign up for a lottery, um, then if you win the lottery, then you got to pay the $200 to get the tag. And then you can go out and, uh, take a shot. Essentially, you can go out and try to get yourself an elk. Um, now the ranch house where he was staying, they had two, two that had been killed. One was going back to like 65, 1965. So to say it's rare to come up with one of these lotteries is an understatement, but, um, they're just massive creatures. Uh, they're very, I don't know. It, it was kind of just breathtaking to see just their natural habitat. I know you, I think at some zoos you can see some and stuff, or, um, obviously you can, with the World Wide web, you can look it up on Google and TV shows and stuff. Um, but it was really, it was really a neat experience that first night. Um, so then we get back to the cabin, you know, we, uh, kind of pack it in for the night and we get up in the morning and, uh, outside the back door of the cabin, uh, they have a neighbor who's, I don't know, maybe like 30 feet between cabins. It's kind of a populated area right there on that part of this like ranch. Um, and they, I think they feed the deer or put down like corn and stuff. So we had probably seven or 10, uh, does and fawns out like probably maybe six feet outside the back door of the cabin, just sitting there munching away on some corn, just hanging out, doing their thing. Uh, and that was really cool. Again, these are completely wild animals. Uh, you might see, again, you might see it at a, like a zoo or something, but it's just different. You know, at a zoo, they can't go anywhere. They can, I mean, they can kind of go in their little pen house or whatever to get away from the elements, but they, you know, it's just, it's different when they're so close. Um, and I couldn't really help, but, you know, notice when observing them and just looking, they kind of act a lot like, uh, like dogs. Um, was this, uh, the first thing, cause I, I mean, I have a, a, um, a shepherd mix, um, and he's awesome. But one of the things that you really pick up with dogs is that you can tell a lot about what they're like, what they're thinking and feeling, um, by looking at both their ears and then their tail. Um, and I found that to be, you know, uh, it does carry over and resemble between, you know, uh, a deer and a dog, you know, they, uh, from what Jake and Ryan were telling me, they kind of use their tail to help signal, um, the, you know, if they, if they hear something or smell something that they're concerned about, you'll see their tails like shoot up, um, or, or two flicks or something. Um, but then the same thing with the ears, you kind of see them perk up, you can tell when they're listening, um, you know, what direction and everything you can really read a lot of their, uh, read a lot through their body language. So that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, just to start off the morning, uh, you really kind of get a sense of how far away from, uh, I guess like the real world you are here in like suburban Southeast Michigan. Obviously we don't get that close to deer. We just, you just don't. So that was exciting. And then we decided we were going to head out for the morning. We were going to do some scouting and go walking. Uh, we drove over to where I guess I believe it's where Ryan and his dad, the area where they usually go park and headed out, uh, I think it was on one of the corners, one of the back, like sort of like the back border area of this, this ranch property. 
Um, and there's like an access road we were kind of walking down. Um, and that's when I really, okay, we started pointing out a lot of different things. For one, you can see, you know, tracks, obviously, but you can tell the difference between deer and elk uh, a little bit by the depth, the size, because obviously elk are a lot bigger. Um, so that's, you know, even I jumped on that one. I'm like, okay, well, that's a track. That's, that's a good sign, right? And, yep. You know, and then you can kind of start looking at um, their scat, their poop. Um, you can tell basically uh, what a deer's is or versus an elk's. Um, and that's important because then obviously, you know, they were in the area, they were eating, they were hanging out, going to the bathroom, obviously. So you know that they've been in the area. That's also a good indicator. Um, now the next thing I didn't, I had no idea about, um, we came across a tree, uh, pretty, I don't want to say necessarily like a sapling, but I mean, kind of like a sapling It's probably maybe 10 or 12 feet tall. They had been basically pulled out of the ground, but the bark had been stripped off of it completely. Um, and that was from, I believe they said it was, uh, it was an elk with the, rubbing his antlers against it. Um, so that was actually really neat to see. Cause I mean, you see it when it's a, when it's a man-made thing, you see shovel marks when you dig a tree out, or if you step on it at the base and you snap the branch off. Um, so this was just like a more, it almost just appeared more natural. Like it's like the tree had naturally come out of the ground on its own. I never seen anything like it. And then as we're walking through, uh, you know, the woods down this, uh, this access road we were on, um, you'd start to see more trees. None of them that were missing all of their bark, but you'd start to see spots. Um, <clears throat> if it was fresh, uh, like blonde colored wood underneath it, that was one of the indicators that, that had been, uh, either a buck or, uh, a bull elk had been there, um, you know, doing that versus some of the trees, just the bark comes off when the tree dies. And that for me was confusing. I'm like, okay, well, is that one? Is that not one? So it's like the subtle things you start to, to pick up on. Um, and then you, you know, you also look at the ground cover. Um, there's oval shapes pressed down in the, in the, the, the foliage, you know, that's off the ground and everything. You can kind of tell that's where they bedded down for the night. Um, as well as usually, again, you'll, you'll start to see other indicators. You'll start to see, you know, either droppings or, uh, marks on the trees or branches broken, stuff like that, uh, that are going to, you know, point, point to the, the deer or, you know, the elk having been there. Um, now obviously this is deer season. So the elk stuff was more just interesting. You're not necessarily, uh, going off the elk behaviors that you're finding because, uh, they kind of conflict for for territory right because elk are bigger um deers are, deer are skittish so it's kind of a one or the other but it's all good knowledge to know and look for especially for me because like i said i like i have I had no idea so this was all just me like soaking it in and getting like fully immersed so then we get over to the area where I think Ryan had said he had had his, uh, his tree stand the year before and, you know, he didn't really have a bunch of luck. So he was kind of looking to stay in the area because his dad had gotten eight pointer near there last year. Um, whoops. His dad had gotten an eight pointer near that area last year and he wanted to, you know, stay, stay over that way, but he wanted to find something different. And I, you know, immediately I'm like, well, what about this tree? It's tall. And it's, uh, like right away, boom, reasons why it's not good stuff. I didn't even realize, um, which once I started thinking about it made a bunch of sense, right? Like that tree won't work because it's a pine pine is a soft wood. So kind of <laughs> don't want to be attaching yourself to that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you want to be attaching yourself to a soft tree like that because, um, you know, all the safety, uh, stuff you use to dig into the tree could, basically give way. Um, if it's not digging in properly, whatever, it's just, it's not, you don't want to suspend yourself off of something soft like that. You want to look for like an, uh, I believe it was an Oak is what they were looking for. Um, but you also have to think about, uh, you know, lines of sight are important, but you kind of almost have to look at it. Like you have to think about what you're going to see from the elevated position. You can't just think about what you're going to see from the ground because yeah, while, the first one that we stopped and looked at, you had this big, wide open area. Um, it really wasn't that big and wide once you get up in that tree. It's about 30 or 40 yards. Um, when you think about like bow hunting, this is something else is 
uh, bow hunting, obviously, you cut down the range uh, a lot because you just you can't accurately shoot uh, the distance that you can with a rifle. So for the bows, you know, if you don't want to have to go out and move your blind or your stand uh, between seasons, which by the time we hit rifle season here in Michigan, I think it's November 15th, um, it's quite cold, which uh, I'm pretty sure it will be anywhere uh, that time of year. Well, unless you're like Florida. But anyways, um, in the northern states, it's going to be quite cold. You don't want to have to take this thing down, go scout out for a new location while other people are out bow hunting or depending when you do it, rifle hunting. Yes, you want to pick a good location. So you have to think about what you're seeing from where you're standing as well as what you'll be able to see beyond that. So once we found a a location that we kind of liked, then it was, all right, well, let's walk out, you know, um, 100 yards in one or two directions and see, does this open up? Does it give you a good look? Uh, Or is is it really limited? You know, might, you might have one or two open spots, but there's a big tree in the middle of it. You're not going to have a good sight line. So there's actually quite a bit of thought and work that goes into it. Um, and then I guess there's also applications now, too, on, like, smartphones. You can see where property lines lie and stuff. Uh, and I know, I think Ryan talked about this with us. I can't, I'm, I apologize, I can't specifically remember. But he did hit a deer, it was either last year, maybe two years ago, and the deer took off across somebody's private property line, and the individual would not let him cross the line to go retrieve the deer. So that's a consideration. You don't want to put yourself too close to a property line that you can't legally cross in the event you hit a deer and it takes off. So, again, there's there's a lot of thought and considerations you want to look at um, that I just didn't realize how, um, I guess, how, how much thought goes into it, really. Um, and we kind of, we did it Saturday, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sunday morning was uh, the second day. We went out and we scouted for a spot for Jake, um, and that one was um, near some water. And that was a whole different learning experience because you start to see things like... Um, you know, if there's an island in the middle of a swamp, that's great because while deer don't have a problem crossing water to get to an isolated spot, I guess uh, like coyotes or fox or whatever their predators are, um, are not as well inclined. They don't want to cross water as well as, uh, I'm sure to some extent scent and things like that get rinsed off and it just, it's, it's a secluded safe spot for them to bed down. So like an island in a swamp is apparently a gold mine. Um, I didn't quite realize that, um, but it was interesting. And then um, you look for all the same kind of indicators uh, with the trees and the and the droppings and everything uh, to try and pick out these good spots because everything needs water, right? So going towards a water source, a swamp, a stream gives you a better chance of running into uh, either a deer or several deer, right? And that's good. You know, uh, more encounters means a better opportunity to clean shot um so uh we you know we came home uh sunday night i recorded um and i've kind of gotten this itch now that i really want to give this uh give this hunting thing a look uh and it's not you know in the past i kind of mentioned the whole fud thing you know in the tactical space we kind of i'm not even gonna mince words we rip on hunters for not being as well versed or uh, as being as being as well practiced in firearms like we are, because for us in the defensive shooting space, that's all it is. It's just the firearm to some extent, tactics, um, manual of arms. You just practice with your firearm. You play with your gun. You know, you, you work on reloads. Uh, you work on target transitions. Yeah, uh, you get live ammo. You work on accuracy, um, but. It's different with hunting, right? Uh, actually, jumping back a little bit, in the middle of the day, Saturday, uh, that we went to the rifle range. <clears throat> and this is when things really kind of clicked with me because I'm more firearm-oriented just because that's all I've kind of known between the two is, hey, they both involve guns, right? So um, both Jake and Ryan needed to sight in their rifles. Uh, now Jake, uh, shoots a 308 Winchester and I believe, uh, I believe Ryan's is a lever action 3030, uh, a Marlin. So I shot Jake's and, uh, my first impressions off of watching him shoot and then shooting myself was one. Wow. It's 308 Winchester is a loud, powerful round. Um, I had, I just had earplugs in when he shot the first time. Um, and I immediately left the earplugs in and went and put the, uh, over ear 
ear protection in because that it just it was loud um part of it is that he has the a compact model rifle that makes it easier and lighter to you know to move around with and everything which is good um but if you aren't practiced with it it really does kick quite a bit um and they were sighting it in at 100 yards. That was kind of the nice part about this particular rifle range that's on the property there. I think that it's split up into three rifle ranges, like 50 yards, 100 yards, and either the third one we didn't touch, but it was it's either 150 or 200 yards. And then they had a small, um, like a pistol range that was, I think, maybe 25, 35 feet or something. Um, really cool, really nice, cool setup. They had a you flip a little switch and the flashing red light and a really loud buzzer goes off to let everybody know, hey, people are walking out to get targets. Don't, you know, everybody behind the red line. It was, it was done really well. Uh, I, I did really enjoy that part of it. Uh, I shot Ryan's 3030 um, and actually was able to put two on a paper plate at 100 yards. Um, so I actually felt pretty okay about that. Um, it's just, it's different because those rounds are meant to inflict like a maximum amount of damage and knockdown power because it's a hunting round right um which is different from like two two three five five six that we use in the tactical space because that's uh, not technically meant to wound but it's a lighter round and it's designed that way to help put you know shots on target um so it's it's very different um when you compare the two worlds, yeah, one is like, obviously hunting is huge, huge, huge on accuracy. Um, not that tactical shooting isn't, it's just you have more opportunities in the tactical space because you're usually shooting from a magazine fed semi-automatic rifle, not a bolt action 308 or a lever action 3030. <clears throat> so, um, it was a pretty neat experience. Um, plus there's no buffer tube or anything. So it's just like straight back into your shoulder, like wham, you know, uh, you really do feel the recoil. Um, but then after that, I did bring like a hundred rounds of nine mil with me, went over to the pistol range. Um, that was a little bit disheartening for me, uh, only because it's been about six, six or seven months since I was able to get to a range because of COVID. Um, I've gotten a lot busier at work, so I've been able to dry fire at home in my off time, but I have not been able to make it to a range and you could tell, um, definitely we we're trying to hit a paper plate size target, uh, you know, all the way out on the pistol range, but it was, um, the first couple hits I was hitting to the left and I, you know, after about four or five, six shots, I figured out I was getting close, but it was, uh, I had to roll back my left hand a little bit, make sure I was applying even pressure in my grip. And after that, things got a lot better. Um, but it just serves as like a really sobering reminder, especially for me, who I consider myself to be a decent shot with the, my 43X, um, that it's a perishable skill. You know, you, you need to practice these things. Uh, I'm happy I got the opportunity to get out and put some rounds through the gun uh, just because, you know, going any more than six or seven months without practice is, is a bad habit uh, to follow. Um, and it really knocks down your preparation. You can work on the manual of arms, the reloading, the target transitioning, uh, drawing and presentation, you can work on all that other stuff. Um, but if you're not actually getting time with live fire, um, with live ammunition, you're, you're going to suffer a bit, um, especially with the compact firearms because they are a little bit harder to control. And I have, uh, big old Christmas hams for hands. So that was, uh, that was, uh, that was much needed for me and definitely a wake up call for, uh, my individual practice. But, um, now that I've been home, <clears throat> like I was saying, I kind of got this, the got bit by the bug a little bit to uh, really start looking into this whole hunting thing. Um, and like I was saying, you know, in the past, uh, I kind of ripped on hunters because they, they're not firearm centric. But it's also really interesting because uh, there's a lot of overlap, but there's it's not that hunting isn't without its challenges. Um, we talk in the tactical space about land navigation. Um, hunters are probably better versed at land navigation than most tactical guys you'll ever meet because tactical shooting, we always think like urban environment until you find yourself outdoors, uh, in open spaces or in rural areas. So knowing how to navigate off the land, um, and knowing what to look for and what it means, what certain birds mean, uh, stuff like that. It's huge, uh, totally invaluable skill set, And it's very respectable, um, I was kind of in awe just walking with Jake for a little bit. Um, you know, see blue jays and things like that. 
um, you know, the different talk about the different kinds of birds, partridge and things like that, that you can hunt, uh, you know, blue jays make uh, noise when deer are around. So blue jays, at least I think it was a blue jay, uh, will make noise, make more noise uh, when deer are around. So that's kind of like a hunter's friend. You know, if they're making noise, it's because something's around. Yes, it might be a squirrel, <laughs> but it could also be a deer. Um, so you want to uh, understand those things, understand what uh what those birds sound like versus something else um but so i got home and one of the things that uh jake and i had talked about a bit during fourth of july and ryan had mentioned to me was a show called meat eater on uh, netflix so i get home uh sunday night and i think either sunday night or monday night my wife and i sat down and started watching some tv and i go hey here's this show um would you mind watching it with me and she's cool about all that we we would sit down we'd watch like um the shark TV shows and stuff on, uh, we have Hulu. We actually have a couple different subscription services. So we would, you know, whatever we found, um, the shark stuff was kind of interesting. So she, she gave this, you know, okay, yeah, let's give it a shot. Let's, let's check it out. And this particular show was hosted by a guy named Steven Ranella, who is a, uh, like master hunter type individual. Um, I actually found it very, uh, informative and enlightening, um, because past what you see, what I had grown up seeing when I was like 13 or 14, I'm flipping through uh, channels on the TV, right? You always stop on like that outdoor channel when you figure out they have like a gun show on and you're like, oh, cool, maybe we'll see something awesome. And then you're kind of just upset because they're always talking about like double barrel shotguns or like hunting rifles where they just they just show you shooting, show the individual, I'm sorry, shooting a deer and that's it. Like it's not interesting. They don't get into the depth or if they did, they got way too far into it. It was just, it was presented poorly. Um, this guy really does a good job. Uh, the episodes were like 25 minutes, which is totally manageable for any of you guys that are out there that are looking for stuff to binge. You know that that's like your sweet spot. 25 minute episodes are perfect because if you got an hour, you can watch two and have a couple minutes left over. Uh, if you have a couple hours, you can watch like six and really feel like you got something done. Um, but he, once they, you know, he'll, he'll hunt something different every episode, whether it's like a coos deer or a mule deer, or there's some fishing episodes and all kinds of stuff. Uh, he really talks about the different species and how everything's a little bit different. So while you're still hunting deer in different places of the world, um, some are more skittish, some are a lot larger, some are a lot leaner. Um, but then he also gets into, uh, like the meat side of it, obviously the meat eater, um, and the cooking and the preparation and then the preservation of the food, um, which my wife's a huge cook. Uh, we redid our kitchen, uh, coming up on two years ago. Uh, we, she specifically designed it how she wanted and with what she wanted and everything. So this is really cool for her to see. And especially when you look at, um, some of the episodes where he butchers the meat on the spot essentially. And then with just what they find, uh, on location, I think it was like marrow and blueberries that he did a reduction on a, like a campfire stove uh, with a pot, a simple pot. Um, it was just, it, it was like mind blowing to think, uh, man, you can do that while you're out camping with nothing more than what you, not like RV ha uh, camping or pop-up camper camping or huge tents, just what you're carrying on your back. And you can prepare meat like this in a meal that's, uh, I mean, honestly, it looked delicious. So, um, it just, it brought a whole new perspective to, uh, the, this, we talk a lot about preparation and, uh, and things like that. And to see how you, how well you can do and how you can kind of thrive without the, what we refer to as the essentials, right? Running water or, uh, snacks or, uh, energy drinks or beer or whatever. Um, it, it, it makes you think, uh, for sure. It makes you think. Um, but I, I really want to give this uh, a go, you know, um, I don't quite think I'm ready to look at like bow hunting or anything like that. But the nice part for me to help justify some of this was that, uh, I've been looking, uh, for a while, not really looking, but, uh, thinking about, <coughs> excuse me, uh, thinking about getting into long range shooting, um, at least trying it out and having the option, um, that way, you know, and if I don't like hunting, in practical application, fine. I can always just take this to an outdoor range and just uh, spend a, you know an hour or two shooting distance. Um, that's the other nice thing is you go through way less ammo. Probably good because it's way more expensive. Um, but it's just uh, you know I, I had been looking at buying a bolt gun for a while, 
So this gives me a really good opportunity um, to go out and uh, look at buying one, making a purchase. Uh, and it's different, right? Because uh, we look at AR-15s in the tactical space or even AR-10s that are chambered in 308 Winchester. Uh, we look at a lot of different things. You look at the, the barrel, you look at your buffer configuration, you're looking at, uh, you know, play between the upper and lower receiver. You want to look at if you're running a flash hider or a muzzle brake or a suppressor. Um, we talk a lot about things like, uh, you know, tactical lights, uh, overall weight, uh, with the gas porting, you know, and stuff like that, just because of how the rifle is designed. And with a bolt gun, it's almost like, it's almost beautiful in its simplicity in that the barrel is still important and the bolt is still important. Um, your trigger pull and, and everything is still important, but that's to an extent, that's almost it. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, it's not like a gas blowback operated setup. So you don't have to worry about your gas tube or over gassing or under gassing or, um, you know, a lot of the, the weird things that we kind of get tied up with in, in the tactical space that kind of take away from the shooting aspect of it. So there's, well, there's some people you'll see online that say, Hey, it goes bang. That's all you need. And then you have the other end of the spectrum saying, no, you need high quality parts. So it'll never, ever fail. And this and that, um, and then ironically, some of the most expensive guns out there, like Kimber 1911s, um, are almost infamous for having uh, failure to eject and, and things like that, having issues just because they're, you know, it's a really nice, well-made gun, but it just isn't a reliable platform. So uh, buying a bolt gun, it's really simple and almost just like an elegant platform, right? Um, and... I've been thinking about it for a while, uh, and after shooting Jake's and Ryan's and then just considering a couple of things, uh, I kind of made my mind up uh, after talking with Sam about his uh, recent build that I want to go with uh, 6.5 Creedmoor uh, as my preferred caliber. For me, it was up in the air. It was going to be either the 308 Winchester or the 6.5 Creedmoor, and 308 Winchester, uh, like Jake had said, you can hunt pretty much any big actually i'm almost certain any big game in north america with 308 winchester so i felt comfortable making that decision that distinction because 6.5 creedmoor is comparable uh to the 308 winchester now i did some of the actual uh now this is where my experience in the tactical space kind of did help uh because i knew a couple different places to look and what what specifically to look for uh, when comparing the two uh, different calibers here. But the what made it really made the decision for me is when I look at 6.5 Creedmoor, um, it will actually go, I, I want to say, I'm remembering this correctly from the article, about 50% further than 308 Winchester would, which is not in itself the def, like the difference maker, right? Because I don't... Um, I don't consider myself any kind of marksman and I don't believe that I'd be taking any kind of shot out past a hundred yards. Um, it seems like not that big of a deal, uh, until you actually get out in a range and put a target like a paper plate, like what we were using at a hundred yards. And then you look at it and go, okay, this is a, a bit further than I imagined it in my mind. And we used a paper plate because the, uh, the kill zone, the target area that you shoot for on a deer is about the size of a paper plate. Um, so when you're, you're practicing your training, you, a, you want to try and draw your restrictions around the realistic expectations you have when you're going to be in that particular situation. Um, you put a big old black dot, black dot in the middle of, it. I think it was about uh, an inch and a half <clears throat> diameter black dot on that target. Um, and you want to zero your scope. Um, so that was the first thing was that it travels for a little bit further. The second thing that really, uh, and this was what really did push me over the edge and make the decision a little bit better, or a little bit easier on me was, um, and I don't know how you test this. I'd actually like to look into it more and, and, and figure out how this research is done is you look at, uh, the recoil between the two rounds. Um, I think it's, I, I believe it's measured in pounds. Uh, 308 Winchester was 19. It's either feet or pounds of re for the recoil. Um, and 6.5 Creedmoor was 14, 14 or 15. So you're looking at like a five pound reduction there. I want to say, uh, between the two, which after shooting the 308, um, even though it was in a compact version, um, that does make it, you know, Hey, you're going to get a little bit better performance, um, with less recoil, 
I'm all about that. That's a tactical guy in me coming out. Um, now there's a long story history behind the 308 Winchester and it's a fantastic cartridge. It's been around 60, 70 years. You find it all over the place and all kinds of different, uh, flavors and varieties from a lot of different uh, manufacturers you know hornady uh makes a bunch remington makes a bunch everybody makes the 308 winchester and uh you'll always find it it's how you know it's uh it's a great performing ground but i decided uh you know now that i'm looking hey 6.5 creedmoor is for me um and then if i need to you know i could always throw a brake uh, a muzzle brake to help dispel some of that gas on the end of the barrel which would help it obviously shoot a little bit flatter make the you know help with accuracy and just make it a little more comfortable as well as uh you know getting something in a full length barrel um not that his compact was very small honestly it's like a 16 inch barrel which is what i run on um, my full size ar-15 uh, but when you're looking at a there's no buffer system to help absorb that recoil and it's a much more powerful round um, it's really an apple to oranges comparison so um you know, I just, I, I had my mind made up, you know, 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, and then after talking to Sam some more, uh, you look at things like, uh, you know, barrels really is what it comes down to next. Cause that's really the, lar- the largest component on your gun is the barrel. Um, and he was, uh, trying to kind of talk me into a Christensen arms, uh, like what he had purchased, um, because they had a guarantee that it would give you sub MOA. MOA is minutes of angle. Uh, it's the, for those of you that don't know, <clears throat> it's the unit, uh, the simplest way I can explain this, it's the, the unit of measurement for like for distance shooting. Um, so when it says sub MOA at 100 yards, you're going to shoot a grouping under an inch. Um, and by grouping, if you were to say, let's put three hits down on a target, you take the two that are furthest apart and you measure that distance. Essentially, that's it. Um, they kind of do it in the movie SWAT uh, with Colin Farrell and Samuel L. Jackson when they, they shoot the last target at the end. You see the instructor kind of stretch out his middle finger and thumb um, between the two hits on the guy's face on the uh, the silhouette target. And that's you kind of you measure. That's how you measure grouping. Now, obviously, that was in a tactical space, so it was much wider. You're talking two or three rounds or four rounds or something on somebody's head versus trying to shoot a one inch grouping with a long gun at a hundred yards. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, so Christensen has a, a sub MOA guarantee. Um, but looking at the money that Sam had spent, I kind of realized, you know, Hey, I'm not, I'm not that great of a shooter. Maybe I don't need that. And then, and, and the, the money for it was definitely, uh, something where I was able to look at it and go, okay, I don't, uh, I don't need to, I don't, I, I, I'm not going to spend $1,200 on a rifle and then have to look at glass. Uh, it's just not feasible for me right now. You know, the holidays are coming up. I'm just not comfortable doing it. Fine. No big deal. So I start looking around, um, and I realize, uh, and I am a little bit of a slave to labels, but, um, I realized that there is a meat eater edition rifle that Weatherby makes. And I'd heard of Weatherby before. Um, and I, you know, everyone's kind of thinking right now, no, I did not go out and buy the meat eater edition rifle because I watched the show. I didn't buy that rifle period. But what I did come across with Weatherby specifically with their Vanguard line of rifles is that they also provide a sub MOA guarantee of three rounds, uh, as long as you're using factor or factory or, um, sorry, Weatherby factory or high grade ammunition, which I think is the same like asterisks everybody puts with those kinds of accuracy uh, claims. Because really, let's be honest, uh, shitty ammo is cheap for a reason. So if you're target shooting at the range and you're going by box of 50 for nine millimeter, you really don't care if you get a couple flyers here or there. If it's ammunition you're using for hunting and that shot accuracy is the difference between you taking down that eight point buck or not, um, it's going to be a little more important. So it does stand to reason that they would say, yes, this will perform this way as long as you're using quality ammunition. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting, um, especially because those rifles can be had for around six or $700. Um, if you go with the more baseline, doesn't have a you know a cool stock or whatever, uh, you can actually get them for around 550 which is really not bad. Um, and when I was talking with Jake and Ryan, uh, talking about purchasing rifles and stuff, um, they kind of 
advise me not to go all in on it if I didn't know if I was going to like it yet. <clears throat> and you can find some cheaper uh, alternatives on the market right now. I know Ruger makes one. Uh, I think Remington makes the 783. Mossberg has the Patriot. And I think Savage Arms makes the Axis. Um, and I did some review, or I looked at some reviews online for each of them. Um, I, I, for a while there, the, I had like my, my mind made up my heart set on uh, a Remington 700. Cause that's like, it's like America's bolt gun. You know, it's been used in the military. It's been used in law enforcement. It's just a, a really smooth setup uh, that performs well and reliably. Um, and it lasts a while. And I knew if I was going to do this, that I wanted to buy myself something where, uh, you know, buy once, cry once without overextending myself, um, but then have something that I would A, really like, um, and B, I'd be able to use this for the next 10, 20 years and not have to worry about it, with the exception of maybe upgrading my optic in a couple of years if I decided to. Um, so that said, um, I, I went and uh, placed an order today uh, for uh, one of these Weatherby rifles, it's just a good deal, man. Hunting or not, um, I got it for about six hundred dollars in one of the local stores here, so I feel good about supporting local. Um, but the other the other piece of that, because I know everyone's out there looking for a bargain, right? And I was too. Um, checking out some of the wholesale websites uh, like Big Daddy Unlimited, um, who had a great price on it. But what you have to consider with the prices like that. And it was, uh, from what I got, there's about a $40 price difference. But what you have to remember with something like buying from a website like that is, A, take your price and immediately add on the cost of shipping. So for what I was looking at, it would have been another $35 for shipping plus another $15 for shipping insurance. Now about you, but if I am making a several hundred dollar purchase through an online provider, uh, especially given how like let's just call it what it is, especially given how fucked the post service has been lately, getting things lost, getting things delayed. Um, you're going to pay $15 for the insurance, protect your investment. Don't be a dumbass. Um, so that's right there. That's an extra $50 on your price tag. Okay. So this, uh, I think it was like 585 was, I was seeing it online. So you add 50 bucks to that and you're at 635 now roughly. Then whatever store you ship to has an FFL transfer fee, federal firearm license uh, transfer fee. And the cheapest I've ever had one of those was 25 bucks. And I know there's other stores out there that charge as much as 50 or 60. So let's go on the conservative end and say an additional $25. So your 635 is now 660 um, plus tax. So I did the math real quick. I talked out with my wife, as every good husband should, right? Happy wife, happy life. Um, kind of got the green light from uh, from her to, hey, you've been talking about this for a while, so um, go ahead and do it. Just make sure it's what you want. You know, buy once, cry once. Um, and like I was saying, you know, I've had a couple of people try and talk me out of it and, and go with something a little bit more affordable. Guys, with your firearms, it's like anything else. It's like an investment. Um, I just have this personal rule about going cheap on a firearm. Um, now, granted, this isn't going to be something I use for personal defense. And that was for a while what I was really thinking about is I want something reliable because I'm going to be using it to defend my life. But with any firearm, you're essentially containing an explosion and a projectile um, there's an inherent amount of danger there. I don't want to pull the trigger and have something blow up in my hand. And that's not a knock on some of these companies making these like 300 to $350 budget line rifles. Um, but when I weigh it out, it's like, okay, yeah, the accuracy might not be what I really want it to be. Um, the fit and finish probably won't really be what I want it to be. Um, and it's something where you want to not be, uh, embarrassed, when you pull out your rifle, right? I mean, it's kind of like a measuring contest of sorts. Um, that doesn't mean you have to have the most expensive setup. You just want to know that you did it okay. Um, for instance, you know, we got up north, uh, Ryan showed me his dad's hunting rifle. His dad has a old, old lever action. I believe it's in 30-06. Um, and he hunts with irons because the ejection port for that rifle is on the, the top of the receiver, so you cannot mount a scope to it. Um, but again, his dad pulled down an eight point last year. So it's, if you're good with it, it's fine. But older firearms kind of almost have like this just cool factor to them, you know, where it's like, Hey, 
my dad hunts with this rifle that was made, you know, 75 years ago or something, and he gets it done. It's like, well, that's, that's pretty badass. So it's not necessarily having the most expensive thing or the nicest thing compared to the next guy. Uh, but to an extent you want to be proud of it and you want to have something that you know is going to be working for you. Um, that's kind of why I had, uh, settled on going with, uh, ordering this particular model Weatherby, and I'll, I'll have pictures obviously, uh, on the Facebook, on the, uh, the Instagram account to share with you guys. Uh, so now I'm kind of at the point where I'm looking at, uh, a paying it off, um, getting those credit card points. Uh, but then looking at optic choices, um, they pretty much have it, you know, down to either Vortex or Leopold. Both are great companies with great reputations. Um, Jake had, had told me, you know, as his uncle advised him, uh, get a three to nine. That's the most magnification you will honestly need for what you're doing. And given the distances, I feel comfortable shooting, you know, maximum 100, maybe 120 yards. Uh, it'll, it's serviceable. However, I, I knew that when I was sitting there shooting uh, his 308, I did feel slightly uh, uncomfortable with the picture I was getting in the scope. And that's not the quality of the picture. It's not a dig on Jake's setup. Um, I just want a little bit more power um, with my optics. So maybe something like a 4 to 12. Uh, there's a lot of options out there from both companies. Uh, both Vortex and Leopold uh, that have great warranties. And, and, I, and I can't overstate this enough, guys. Uh, Vortex, great company with great customer service, uh, lifetime warranty. Leopold, from everything I'm hearing, uh, is the same. And Leopold is American-made. Um, so while Vortex isn't, so therefore you're going to save a little bit of money. Um, great companies with uh, awesome customer service. So if you're in the market for like a red dot or a magnified power scope, uh, I, I do recommend both of those companies wholeheartedly. Uh, I own, let me see, I'll count right here. One, two, three. Uh, I own four or five different, uh, Vortex optics, uh, combination of red dots, flip up magnifiers, uh, reflex sites, LPVOs. They're great, man. Um, even the cheap one, uh, and this cheap crossfire two, one to four that I, that I got two years ago, uh, good reliable picture uh good illumination and everything for what it is so um i still have to do some research i kind of want to figure out i want to make an informed decision with this uh and really figure out where i need to be for my own performance i think four to twelve is where i'm gonna end up i thought about something with a six to like 24 uh but my thing is your base magnification being a six times is still pretty powerful considering uh the range of engagement. So I just feel like that might be a little bit too much. Um, I could be wrong. Again, I still have to do some more looking. Um, but this is exciting. Uh, it's something that uh, has kind of brought uh, some excitement and a lot of questions uh, for me. Um, something I can really see myself immersing myself in and really uh, being passionate about uh, in this in this kind of uh, this offshoot of the firearms passion I already have. Um, one of the nice things with hunting is you, I mean, you kind of hear about it growing, well, you used to, I can't obviously say that you are anymore because I don't know in public schools you used to hear about and learn about native Americans when you were in grade school, um, and the hunting and how they used, uh, you know, they use every part of the animal for different things. And that's, that's kind of one of the things I really enjoy about watching Steven Rinella's, uh, series, um, and his YouTube videos and things is he's a really, uh, he's a very stout conservationist, um, at heart and talks a lot about not over harvesting, right? Not taking more than you need, even if it means going home without, uh, without a deer or without, uh, whatever it is you're hunting, uh, talking a lot about taking care of the environment and kind of like the spiritual connection between the hunter, uh, and, and the wilderness, uh, and just being able to get to separate from a life where we, like I, I thought the other day is the much, as much screen time as I put in day to day with my job and the podcast and my phone and everything. And then just chilling out watching TV to get away from that and just spend time outside, um, in wide open spaces away from it all is just, uh, probably, I mean, guys, honestly, I just remember we got out of the truck and we went to go scout the first morning and just looking out on this wide open range of, uh, I don't know if they're really technically 
mountains, but it just, it was like this picturesque view that was just awesome. You know, fresh air and it wasn't even a clear sky. It was a overcast day. We had rain. I didn't even care that we were in the rain. I was just happy to be there. Um, I think that's kind of what has, uh, really drawn me towards this. So I'm excited and I'm excited to kind of share this all with you as I learn more. And as I, uh, as I grow, uh, in this, this endeavor. So Thanks for checking out the pod this week, guys. If you're listening, I, I, I appreciate the hell out of it. I really do. Um, we're going to try and get some more hunting stuff uh, built into what we're doing here. Both Sam and I are kind of moving this direction together. Uh, we might have Jake and Ryan on more. I know I definitely want to see and hear how they do this hunting season um, and possibly even go out with them uh, if I get the opportunity to. Uh, so, uh, that's all I got for you this week. Uh, look for more content. If you have, uh, you know, friends and family, get them to follow, have them, uh, check us out. Like I said, we're gonna be working on some new content. We're always looking on adding, uh, new stuff. Uh, so that's prepared.mindset.pod on the old Instagram. Give us a follow, give us a like, drop us a line, uh, prepared.mindset.podcast at gmail.com is our uh, email address and we get some questions i'd like to see more questions what i'd like to do guys is honestly get like a grab bag episode or a uh, a mail-in episode where i just answer your guys questions about stuff or talk about even talk about topics that people want to hear about i'm sure i'm missing some things um but i i value the input um in all walks of life i never think i'm the person with all the answers i always want input from from other people uh and i think anybody who uh, really desires to excel at whatever they're doing in life, whether it's shooting or hunting, teaching, uh, anything. You you will value the input of others around you um, and their ex- and follow their examples. Whether it's an example of what to do or what not to do, uh, something is to be learned from every interaction. And I I really truly believe that, and I try to live my life that way. So uh, again. Thanks for checking us out this week, guys. I will have more for you next week. Until then, stay prepared.